Hi, everyone. Welcome to today's Safety and Health webcast, Making the Case for Contractor Management, Examining the Safety Benefits of Third-Party Management, sponsored by Browse. My name is Kevin Drooley. I'm an associate editor with Safety and Health magazine, and I will be moderating today's session. Thanks for joining us. In a few minutes, we'll start the presentation, but first I want to go over some preliminary items. The views of today's speakers and organizations are their own and do not necessarily reflect those of the National Safety Council or Safety and Health magazine. Any mention of a commercial enterprise, product, or publication does not mean the council or magazine endorses those items. At the end of today's webcast, we will conduct a question and answer session. To ask a question, simply type it in the text box in the lower left-hand corner of your screen and click the button for Submit Question. Feel free to ask your question at any time during the presentation. You don't have to wait for the question and answer session to begin. We'll try to answer as many questions as possible, but because of the large number of participants today, we might not get to every question. Any unanswered questions will be forwarded along to today's speaker. For basic troubleshooting information, click the Help button located on your screen. At the end of the webcast, you'll be asked to complete a brief evaluation survey. I will let you know more about that after the presentation. This webcast is archived, so you can access it after today's live event. To view this webcast and all of our past webcasts, go to safetyandhealthmagazine.com slash events. With that, let's go ahead and get started. Our speakers today will be Pat Cunningham, MS, Director of Safety and Auditing Services at Browse, and Joy Inoue, Research Associate for the, Capital, I'm sorry, the Campbell Institute at the National Safety Council. Joy has worked on several research topics for the Campbell Institute, including EHS leading indicators, risk perception, and contractor safety management. Pat has a master's degree in occupational health and safety management and more than 25 years of experience in the safety field. He also is a delegate to the National Safety Council. Again, we thank all of you for tuning into this presentation. Pat and Joy, whenever you're ready, go ahead and take it away. Thank you. Uh, Browse has been helping organizations qualify and pre-qualify their contractors for over 16 years. And we're proud to be sponsoring this webinar and believe it contains content that will help both host employers and those who work for them. We obviously believe in what we do, and we've seen great results for our clients. But it's exciting to see that the National Safety Council's research has quantified what we've been qualifying, that the activity of pre-qualifying and monitoring suppliers will lead to better safety outcomes. All right, thanks for the introduction, Kevin, and um, great to hear from Pat here from Browse. Um, so this is Joy Inoue from the National Safety Council, and I assume that if you're on a safety and health webinar, uh, you do know about NSC. Uh, we are a 100-year-old, roughly, congressionally chartered safety nonprofit, and our new mission here is to eliminate preventable deaths in our lifetime, and we do this by uh, focusing on leadership, research, education, and advocacy. Uh, we focus a lot of our attention where uh, preventable injuries and deaths occur. This includes workplaces, uh, prescription drug overdoses, teen driving, distracted driving, and also home and community safety. And if you didn't know the organization that um, I work for specifically within the uh, National Safety Council, this is the Campbell Institute. The Campbell Institute is the EHS Center of Excellence at NSC. Uh, we are named after NSC's first president, Robert W. Campbell, and we launched in 2012 with the mission of um, empowering organizations to achieve and sustain EHS excellence. And we do this primarily through gathering and disseminating the best practices and lessons learned from our Campbell Institute members and partners. Our vision uh, for the Campbell Institute is to become the trusted source for protecting people and preserving the planet. And if you want to see who uh, comprises the Campbell Institute, these are our members. Right now we have 36 members and seven partners that share this original vision of protecting people and preserving the planet. Each member or partner that you see here on this slide goes through a rigorous application and evaluation process. And we are very pleased to say that Browse is a member of the Campbell Institute and has been for several years at this point. So it's great to partner with them on this webinar. Uh, to get to the first part of our webinar today, we have um, a study that we just completed uh, late last year. 
It actually started in the spring of 2017. Browse and NFC partnered on a research project to answer this question, what are the benefits of a third-party contractor management system? And what Browse did is provide NSC access to its database of nearly 17,500 supplier companies from the years uh, 2007 to 2015. NSC researchers analyzed the safety statistics of the supplier database, uh, specifically looking at total recordable rate, DART, um, and LWR, which is lost work rate, of these supplier organizations to see the results of being associated with a third-party contractor prequalification system. So what I'll add to that, Joy, is that from our perspective, the benefits of, of utilizing a third-party provider is a relief of an administrative burden, of calling all of your suppliers to collect the protocols that, that you have for your company it takes a lot of time and effort. Then there's a, once you get the information, then it needs to be verified that it's accurate. And then it needs to be uh, placed in a, in a system where uh, your company stakeholders have access to it. And that's usually divided across many departments, different databases, uh, secured systems, uh, department systems, and, and firewalls. So that, that's, a, that's a big challenge. And then we continuously, continuously update uh, the information that's uh, your uh, specific protocols. Uh, improved metrics is another benefit of a, a third-party administrator. You can look at your contractors in terms of percent compliance, their ranking within their industry classification, and their status of their safety and health system. But as, as the research demonstrates, uh, what Joy is going to show in the next couple slides will show that uh, the end result is safer performing contractors. We lose joy. I'm sorry. I I had myself on mute. <laughs> okay. Oh. I'm sorry. Um, yeah. As um, as Pat was saying, um, you know, we're going to go through the results of the of the study here. And what we were doing is in, in each calendar year. And remember, we're looking at between the years of uh, 2007 and 2015. We compared uh, the browse supplier average of total recordable rate, days away restricted and transferred, and lost work rate against the national averages of those statistics. And the national averages were determined from uh, the report on the Bureau, from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, um, which they release each year. And we found that on average, browse suppliers have a TRR that is 34% lower than the national average, a DART that is 48% lower than the national average, and a loss work rate that is 65% lower than the national average. So that's one of the first takeaways that we, we found here from the, from the research. Another finding is that browse suppliers see an improvement in these safety statistics the longer that they are registered with browse. So we track suppliers from the year that they officially registered with browse and then looked at their trajectory of their statistics, remember it's TRR, DART, and LWR, on a yearly basis thereafter. And you can see that companies overall in the U.S. Yeah, experienced a reduction in TRR uh, between 2007 and 2015 of 41%. That's what the the first uh, bar chart on the on the left is showing you. Um, yet companies that registered with Browse experienced an even bigger reduction in TRR in that same period, a reduction of 57%. Another way that we analyzed the data was to look at two-digit industry codes. Um, so the first two uh, analyses were done just comparing uh, the entire browse supplier database against um, all of industry, the entire BLS. And we wanted to look at this for specific industries. And we found that browse contractors in any two-digit industry code 
still have a better average TRR, DART, and LWR in any year uh, as compared to industry as a whole. And we also analyzed the rate of annual improvement in TRR, DART, and LWR for browse contractors and industry as a whole. And what we found here is that browse contractors in any two-digit industry code have a stronger rate of annual improvement in those statistics as compared to the, to the BLS. And finally, we did another analysis, and this one takes a little bit of explanation, where we divided the browse contractor group, the browse contractor universe, into two halves. We have Group A, and that consisted of those contractors who outperform industry average. Um, and Group B consisted of contractors who performed below industry average. And we calculated that industry average once again by looking at the BLS for that year. And our original hypothesis here is that the higher performers, so those in Group A, those who are um, already outperforming industry average, they may have a smaller rate of improvement year over year. Just because, you know, as uh, a company gets safer, as it gets better, as those numbers track closer to zero, it gets increasingly more difficult to improve upon um, ever smaller numbers. Uh, however, we actually found the opposite. We found that browse contractors that outperform industry still have better rates of improvement in total recordable rate, days away restricted and transferred, and lost work rate. Um, so this was a little bit counter to our, our hypothesis, but it was a very uh, actually pleasant uh, result to see. Uh, this really means that Browse helps contractors to continually improve over time on these statistics without any stagnation, without seeing that kind of um, plateau that, that might come uh, when your numbers creep closer and closer to zero. Those are the high-level uh, results of our, um, of our collaboration between Browse and NSC on this study. And if you really want to see the full report, there, there are a lot of calculations in there, and there's a lot of more that we, we couldn't get into here necessarily today. But if you want to see the full report, you should go to the website listed. That's nsc.org slash contractor management. Uh, you can download a full report, and you can also see an executive summary there um, as well. Um, so that kind of that concludes the um, that uh, summary of that first part of the research. Now, what we actually did beforehand um, was a, another uh, research project on contractor safety management uh, from the Campbell Institute, and this research took place a few years back, starting in 2014, and this one. Uh, involved uh, several other Campbell Institute uh, studies, we, we, our uh, organizations. We wanted to research uh, Campbell members' best practices when it came to managing the safety of their contract and temporary workforce. And to do this, we conducted um, interviews with 14 of our Campbell Institute organizations. And these are the organizations that we conducted those interviews with. Um, each participant that uh, is listed here provided an in-depth interview um, and or documentation of their contractor policy guidelines. Um, so you can see here we have AECOM, BAPCO, BNSF Railway, Chevron, Cummins, Furmanich, Floor, Georgia Pacific, Johnson Controls, NASA, who is one of our partners, Norfolk Southern, Schneider Electric, USG, and US Steel. Thank you, Joy. I'll say this from a, from a stakeholder, as a host employer and, and now working for Browse, I'll say that success in contractor management is attributed to extensive due diligence from host employers, contractor companies who are investing in safety, and the protocol verification of those who are assigned to do so. And I'll, I'll use the phrase, stick to your guns. Um, don't allow contract awarding outside of your system process. They'll 
aggravate what uh, what you're already doing and uh, defeat your purpose. And then also don't be afraid of the perception or even the reality of losing some contractors who don't wish to participate. You're administering your company's established risk tolerance protocols. You're looking at job safety and you're looking out for the company brand. You'll be a change agent for positive improvement. I'll say this though, that you won't necessarily be immediately appreciated by everyone, so I'll say again, stick to your guns. <laughs> Thanks, Pat. All right, let's get into uh, this research that we have here. So uh, the project began uh, with a convening of 15 EHS professionals from our institute organizations in September of 2014. Um, and the group uh, collectively decided to couch their practices uh, within these five crucial steps of the contractor life cycle that you see here on this slide. Uh, so before work commences, uh, there are typically three stages, pre-qualification, pre-job task and risk assessment, and contractor training and orientation. And during contractor work, there is the monitoring of the job. And finally, after the completion of the work, there is a post-job evaluation which can then be the basis for contractor requalification and the restart of this contractor life cycle. So what uh, Pat and I will do is we'll go through these stages and highlight the best practices of our research participants in each stage. And you'll really find that the majority of the best practices are found in the first four steps of this contractor life cycle. And when we get to the last step, post-job evaluation, that's where you'll really find the common challenges that our institute participants face in managing contractor safety. Thanks, Joy. And I'll also add to that, in today's business climate, there's an industry and regulatory expectation to host employers to pre-qualify their contractors. Unfortunately, too many host employers don't realize this reality until after a, ne a negative event occurs. And regardless of whether you're a host employer with an in-house or managed program, or even if you're a contractor company, I highly recommend that you look at the Campbell Institute's contractor lifecycle elements to assess your process. Um, assess your program from the perspective of the five elements. I, I would recommend that you conduct an element-by-element -element gap analysis to see uh, where you are, and then develop a strategy to close the gaps if you decide that, if you de determine that you're not where you want to be, and then utilize metrics to help you gauge your process. Mm -hmm. Good pieces of advice there. Uh, okay, so let's get into the first stage, the pre-qualification stage, and a best practice that we found here is that all of our research participants, all 14 of them, assess contractors on their safety statistics, uh, such as experience modification rate, uh, TRR, DART, OSHA recordables, fatality rate, etc. These numbers are generally very well understood across organizations, which makes them standard for data collection and evaluation. Uh, these numbers are just a baseline, however, uh, for evaluation. Some organizations compare contractor rates against those in the same or similar NAICS code um, and even ask for performance on leading indicators. And then I'd add, as a rule, there's, there's no company relies on one lagging indicator metric. Most companies rely on several, allowing visibility to more specific information and to see if the metrics are trending in the same direction. Some of those lagging indicators are the injury and illness rates, uh, the, the NACE or the North American Industry Classification System industry comparisons with the Bureau of Labor Statistics, and then the EMR, the Experience Modification Rate that looks at cost of injuries uh, by uh, anticipated cost by, uh, by that industry, and then lastly, establishment search uh, looking at OSHA citations. Mm -hmm. Um, another thing that we found um, in the pre-qualification stage is that the majority of our research participants used a, a third-party pre-qualifying agency, such as Browse. Um, and this was due in large part to the size and number of projects involving contractors at Campbell Institute organizations. Really, it's the, the widespread use and large scope of contractors in global organizations very much like Campbell members. 
uh, often necessitates the services of pre-qualifying companies to handle a large part of that initial vetting process. Additionally, these third-party agencies assist contractors in finding their performance gaps and then works with the contractors to bridge those gaps. And I'd say this, under a managed system, uh, there's an assurance of continuous process improvement. There's approach to contractor management, uh, as I mentioned before, gap analysis, goal setting, and measurement. And, and some of the common uh, surprises to, to clients is, is that when they assess their contractors, that they see a, a initial failure rate of their protocol somewhere in that range of 80%. And I'll say that uh, you know, many of our, our host clients are large corporations and the contractors that they hire uh, perhaps are small to medium-sized companies. And, and these size companies don't self-audit their programs, which uh, larger corporations are used to doing. So um, anticipate a surprise uh, with the results it may receive. I'll also say that information access to company stakeholders uh, through web-based access, computer, and, and phone apps is, is uh, helping uh, get the real information down in the field uh, where, where the work is taking place. And I, I'll also say that uh, closing the biggest gap of an in-house program is the requalification of suppliers' protocol data points that come due at different points of the year. That, that's not all uh, conveniently um, takes place on, on January 1st. And what, what uh, a managed system allows you to do is to manage your contractors. It's, it's justification supported by metrics, hire safer performing companies. And if you're a safety person in the field, you, you've seen some examples where that may not have been taking place. So uh, when, when you want to hire a safer contractor, you're going to need some, some metrics to help support why you want to do one over the other. And then from a, a, a contractor standpoint, is that this is really a reinforcement for them to invest in safety, their leadership training, their employment, employee engagement, and, and even in their process as well. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pat. Uh, we're going to get into the second stage of the contractor life cycle now, and th that is the pre-job task and risk assessment stage. And what we found here is that two-thirds of our research participants had a method to evaluate the risk rating of the work to be performed. That was usually done per risk matrix. Um, and to place contractors in a predetermined risk category or a liability category. And based on this assessment, some organizations uh, or some contractors may require further action, uh, such as additional pre-job meetings or walkthroughs. I have on this slide some examples from some of our members. So Georgia Pacific performs an initial risk assessment based on the broad scope of work and a second assessment that's based on the contractor's work procedure. They assign point values for severity, frequency, and probability to calculate the risk that's associated with a given project. Uh, Norfolk Southern assesses risk in terms of insurance liability and the type of work involved, particularly if it's close to uh, an operating rail line. And finally, at BNSF, projects are assigned a pre-qualification action level. And that is dependent on the risk level of the work. Projects that are score a four or above on a six-point scale for BNSF require pre-qualification through a third party. And I'll say that it's typically to see contractors being grouped into three buckets or three categories of low, medium, and high risk. And there's certainly granularity variations within that. But that's typically what you're going to see in industry. And then while the methodology varies, most host employers rely on the use of a questionnaire covering the range of contractor services provided to their corporation. And contractors respond, and based on their responses, that places them into a pre-established risk ranking bucket. A benefit of this approach is the scalability of contractor assessment based on the risk level. And a common complaint that uh, we, we hear from contractors uh, when we're at tr trade shows or, or just in conversations with them is that they're being scrutinized for programs that they have no involvement, and that dries up costs. It also uh, hurts the credibility of the host employer's program. So um, be very um, diligent about what you're asking contractors to provide. And, 
And the benefit of a managed system is the unnecessary cost avoidance and only paying for services used. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and let's get to another um, practice that we see in the pre-job task and risk assessment phase. Um, here we found that the majority of participants specified that the general contractor is in charge of hiring subcontractors and also managing their safety. Uh, subs are held to the same standards as general contractors, and it's the general contractor's responsibility to apply those standards. Uh, this responsibility uh, on the part of the general contractor provides even more justification for owner companies to be diligent about hiring reliable and accountable general contractors from the very beginning. And I'll, I'll say this, upon further review, this best practice really has been downgraded into to what uh, we term as a common practice, so that if you're a host employer and you allow general or prime, prime contractors to evaluate your subs, consider the following. Are you open your risk, uh, yourself for risk and liability exposure after a negative event? And, and, and what's, your, what's your defense going to be in terms of uh, questions that invest and think about in terms of questions investigators might ask? Um, would there be a conflict of interest between the prime and the, and the subcontractors and, and, and was an objective assessment conducted? And do you have access to the data? And then did the evaluation meet your written standards? So it's, these are some of the things um, you're going to be asked after a negative event and, and um, you need to be prepared to answer those questions. Mm -hmm. Right. We'll, we'll talk about this more uh, when we get to the common challenges section, too. Uh, I'll just tee that up right there. Moving on to the next stage in the contractor life cycle is uh, training and orientation best practices. And under this stage, all of our research participant organizations require safety orientation and skills training of contractors in order for them to be approved for work. Often these orientations and trainings are provided on site. Some organizations require passing a written test after a training. Others require the completion of, say, a 30-hour OSHA course. I have some examples here on this slide. At FLOOR, contractors attend a contractor HSC alignment kickoff meeting with hazard awareness and compliance training that's to be completed within one week of the start of work. Furmanich's general safety orientation includes a contractor safety video with a test directly afterwards on which they must score 80% or above, or they are not allowed to work. And AECOM requires leaders to complete a 30-hour OSHA course and all other contracted personnel to complete a 10-hour OSHA course before beginning work. And I'll say this, that uh, through uh, learning management uh, system portals, there's also companies conducting these orientations or trainings prior to contractors arriving on site. I used to work for a large electric utility, and, and we had an in, quite a big influx of, of, um, of employees uh, when we had a, an outage. And the same thing for uh, when I worked at oil refineries, when they have a turnaround, there's a big influx of, of workers showing up on site at the same time, and, and essentially you're, you're losing a day of, of um, productivity when that takes place. So some of these, these uh, employers are using um, learning management systems to have these, these trainings done in advance of showing up on site. Uh, you can certainly see the time and resource efficiencies there um, to, to justify or to demonstrate that these workers have completed these orientations. Uh, some companies are using hard hat stickers or, or when they go up to a job site, uh, they'll ask for the wallet card showing that they've passed that orientation. So these are some of the things that that you can do to help maximize um, employer cost and, and contractor face time. So the, the time that you do spend with contractors when they're on site is, is used as efficiently as possible. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pat. Um, we get to specialized training on this slide. And specialized training is often provided by Camel Institute organizations. All the organizations in our study require special permits or training for specific kinds of work, including, uh, but not limited to, confined space entry, electrical work, hot work, energy control, forklifts, and elevated work. 
Um, in addition, specialized training is often provided by Campbell Institute organizations, including things like uh, hazard identification, PPE, lockout tagout, and uh, fall prevention. I have some examples here on this slide. At USG, these specialized uh, area trainings are completed through an online program. For Cummins, refresher programs in job-specific areas are held at least annually for long-time suppliers. Institute organizations uh, will also hold um, annual refresher training courses and may also have contract worker badges to indicate their training in specialized areas. And I'll say this, that, that most of what we've covered so far is, is, is vetting contractors at the company level. I also want to, to let you know that contractors can also be vetted at the employee level. And I'll give you a few examples of, of some of the ELM um, training, uh, specialty training that can, can um, be captured by host employers of their contractors. And these are such things as a fork truck operator, a crane signal person or operator, first aid CPR AED training, uh, hazardous spill response, uh, system security, uh, background program checks. That can be also done at the company and employee level, uh, drug and alcohol screening, and then human resources comes to play where uh, code of conduct and, and some companies have firearm uh, provisions that they need uh, individual workers to sign off on. I'll say that this um, collectively, uh, this uh, at the employee level, this is where uh, in-house systems don't generally have the sophistication to capture this information and keep it current. Mm -hmm. Thanks, Pat. Uh, let's go on to the fourth stage of the contractor life cycle, and this is uh, the um, job monitoring uh, stage. And in this stage, every research participant uh, all 14, um, has a periodic uh, assessment during the contract term, so uh, during the time when that contract work is being performed. And this can range from daily checklists and safety talks to weekly walkthroughs of the sites um, and even monthly or yearly assessments. And I'll say this, second only to, to post-work evaluation, Monitoring of the job is the second biggest challenge for host employers in addressing the five stages of the contractor life cycle. I'll say there, there's a joint responsibility for host employers and their contractors to conduct job site safety assessments and observations. And the two most significant questions are, is it being done and is it being documented? And anybody that's had any OSHA training will realize those, are, those uh, two questions remain the same no matter what the topic. But in, in the area of monitoring the job, I'll say that the, the monitoring and, and provision should be part of the, the uh, provisions written into the contract. I would also say that uh, they should receive assurance, that these uh, host employers should receive assurance that these observations are being done and have regular uh, conversations with contractors about what they're finding and how they're making corrections. And under, the, under a managed system, I'll say this, that a uh, common complaint by um, hosted administrators, um, operations, that type of uh, organization where they're going to look at the safety staff to be out in the field, and if they're doing the um, contractor calls, they have less time to be actually in the field. So under a managed system, safety people have more time to be actually in the field and, and correct things before they become big problems. Mm -hmm. Right. We have another um, uh, practice here for job monitoring, and here um, institute organizations also require safety observations from contractors. Um, they might have some quotas for contractor observations that they'd like to meet. Um, some organizations even have mobile apps to submit those uh, observations and to actually facilitate um, submitting those observations. I have some examples here from U.S. Steel. Um, we see that U.S. Steel requires contract employees to submit a minimum of two observations per employee per month. To track observations on a daily basis, uh, we see that AECOM uses a mobile app 
to report non-compliance or unsafe conditions. Um, and their mobile app is called Lifeguard. Uh, with this, they measure things like time to closure as a leading safety metric. And when a report is logged, the application alerts the contractor and tracks the time for that report to be closed. And I'll say that this, that uh, contractor self-assessment is a vital link to good job safety uh, work performance. Uh, the information obtained is the basis of meaningful discussion between the host employer and their contractors. It, it gives them common dialogue to talk about uh, things they're both familiar with and understand. And the, and the dialogue between the host employer and, and the contractor uh, should not be minimized at all because this, this is the opportunity where you, you know, the rubber hits the road where you have the opportunity to strengthen that partnership uh, and the mentoring process that takes place between a host employer and their contractors. And I'll say we, we, we touched on it briefly, but mobile apps are becoming more prevalent and the technology will help with tracking, trending, and, and response. Mm -hmm. Great. Uh, another thing here for job monitoring is the maintenance of incident and near-miss report, near report logs. This is really crucial to monitoring contractor safety during a project. Near-miss reports can be treated as a leading indicator and can also be used to take uh, those proactive safety measures. Some examples here are from NASA. At NASA, contractors must provide quarterly reports on lost time lost time injuries and dollar losses. This information is included in a quality assurance surveillance plan to assure that uh, our taxpayer dollars are being spent wisely. And at BAPCO, uh, they require contractors to maintain incident and near-miss report logs to ensure that the proper corrective actions are being implemented. And I would say this, that host employer access to contractor information varies widely. Some sites require and track all injury and near-miss information jointly, and others track it separately. And either way uh, you do it uh, is certainly fine. A common challenge for many sites is the tracking of findings from assigned individuals to successful completion. And this can be accomplished successfully in-house or with specialty vendor tools. Mm -hmm. All right, so now we get uh, more to the common challenges section here. And, you know, as we mentioned earlier, there are some common challenges that Camel Institute organizations face in managing contractor safety. So only about half of the organizations in the study included specific courses of action for contractor infractions, with the rest choosing to deal with infractions on a case-by-case -case basis. So for those that actually did have um, uh, those courses of action for infractions. Here are some examples. At USG, there are consequences outlined for the first, second, and third infractions with a termination of the contract after the fourth infraction. Cummins determines a course of action for infractions based on the severity of the incident or the supplier's conduct, and a flowchart of actions is included uh, in the appendix of their contractor guidelines with uh, four basic steps. They do counseling and verbal warning, then is the first written warning, second written warning, and finally there's dismissal or even barring from the facilities um, after the fourth infraction. Some companies like Johnson Controls employ an informal progressive discipline policy, but also have strict policies for specific types of serious infractions. So any conditions that are classified as immediately dangerous to life or health are grounds for immediate termination of a contract worker. We, here's another challenge that our Campbell Institute organizations face, and this is the lack of an evaluation of contractors after the work has been completed. Only a few of our research participants, five of them out of the 14, had a formal post-job evaluation or specific guidelines for contractor requalification. And those that do have a formal evaluation are typically determining if the contractor work was done safely and well. Examples here, uh, Georgia Pacific considers post-work evaluation results when a contractor bids on future jobs. U.S. Steel has a safety and operating inspection that's completed for every process change that's not part of routine maintenance work. 
And Chevron's periodic performance reviews also capture an evaluation of contractor performance after a job is done. And I'll say this, in the last phase of the contractor cycle, life cycle, it's the host employer's biggest current challenge and the largest opportunity for process improvement. In many cases, this just is not being addressed. Final stage of the contractor life cycle, the post-job evaluation, is really the host employer's documented transfer of knowledge to other internal stakeholders. In this phase, the staff can record lessons learned and provide improvement recommendations and share information about how common interactions with the con went with the contractor. So the range of potential and tactical strategic uh, improvement benefits to the host employer is largely untapped. You know, some of the examples could be as lessons learned from logistical planning and, and mobilization alone could save the host employer considerable time and expense. I would like to note, though, that having a placeholder to be able to record the data along with a dedicated resource to mine the data is really what continues to make this phase of contractor management life cycle the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thanks, Pat. Um, we have another uh, challenge here, uh, and this relates back to that common practice that we saw among owner companies that place general contractors in charge of subcontractor safety. Uh, and while you know this may be a common practice uh, among our Campbell companies, we realize that this may pose some safety concerns. And I'll say this, uh, why the challenge was addressed in the previous slide in terms of a common practice it does bear repeating that the practice of host employers relying on general and prime contractors to vet their subs is, is a common challenge to host employers. And to overcome this risk and liability, host employers are going to need to run their subcontractors through, through the same risk ranking and vetting process that they do for the other contractors within their supply chain. Mm -hmm. So we're kind of uh, reaching the a summary of the um, of the study here, and what we can see on this slide is a, um, a kind of collection of the best practices and the common challenges that we looked at on the previous slides. We can say with certainty that the pre-qualification process of contractors is rigorous across the organizations that were represented in this study. The analysis of safety statistics is pretty much standard, uh, but Campbell participants have often gone beyond uh, looking merely at numbers and also considering other things like the contractor's use of leading indicators, the quality of their safety programs, uh, and the presence of continuous improvement plans. The effort that is put into orienting and training contractors is really evidence of the need to mitigate risk and to extend that culture of safety to all workers on site, temporary or otherwise. Several participants mentioned the benefit of helping contractors achieve better performance through more rigorous training and adherence to policies, thereby lifting the standard of industry as a whole. And with this thinking, uh, there is more to contracting out work than just reducing risk and exposure much more can be gained by truly owning and managing contractor safety. On the challenges side, uh, the extensive vetting process makes it a little surprising that so few of the participants in the study actually had a method for evaluating contractors once that work has been finished. Uh, most of our participants agreed, however, that a thorough post-work evaluation and a rubric for contractor requalification are good practices to have. So, you know, at the conclusion here of, you know, these, uh, you know, we talked about two different studies here. Um, the one that we just finished talking about on the best practices for contractor management, that is a white paper that can be found at the Campbell Institute website, and that's thecampbellinstitute.org slash research. And if you go there, you'll find not only this report, but um, other research reports uh, that range from uh, leading indicators to things like risk tolerance or perception. We also have uh, some brand new white papers up there on uh, health and well-being, uh, sustainability, and also visual literacy for hazard recognition. 
And to go back to the first part of our presentation when we talked about that uh, collaboration between Browse and NSC, that full research report, once again, can be found at nsc.org slash contractor management. You can see the, uh, the full report with all the tables and numbers that go with it, and also um, there's a great um, shorter executive summary you can download as well. Thank you, Joy. And I, I too would like to summarize. And, and first I'd like to summarize by stating that the, the NSC Browse database research quantifies the hard work and, and attention to detail by all contractor management stakeholders does result in, in better safety outcomes. And secondly, the, the criteria framework within the five stages of the contractor life cycle, the best practices, and, and also the common challenges shared by the Campbell Institute member companies provides an excellent process improvement roadmap for all host employers and contractor companies. And, and now we'll turn it over to the moderator for Q&A. Excellent. Great job, Pat and Joy. Thanks for your insights and expertise. Uh, before we do start the Q&A, just want to remind everyone of the evaluation survey we're asking you to complete. The survey should be appearing on your screen now. Your input is important because it will help us improve future webcams. If you do not see the evaluation survey on your screen, please turn off your pop-up blocker. Uh, you may access the survey by clicking the survey button near the lower right part of your screen. With that, we'll get to some questions. First, do you have any recommendations for assessing contractors differently based on their work type? I can take that. Yeah, the, I would look at the types of services that the, the supplier is going to be providing you know, look at your critical uh, programs and, and seeing what um, kind of programs they're going to get involved with. The lockout tagout, typically one, confined space entry, working from hikes. These are the things that you're going to want to look at their written safety programs. And if you get involved with the employee level management, you're going to want to make sure that not only did they, did they have a good company policy, that it's compliant with OSHA standards, is that did the training take place? And, and at a at a at a higher level, I, I would take a look at the safety and health management system. Uh, this is an area where I, I certainly have a lot of passion about. In, in terms of, you need to have the the compliant written programs and employee training, but you also should be looking at when you have conversations with these contractors, what do they do to to train their leadership on safety? What is the expectations that they have in the field, and how do they engage their employees? And and these are leading indicators, these are metrics that you can use to really truly judge the potential of that company to work safely for you as a host employer. All right, next question. What advice do you have for working with other departments to implement a program? I, I could take this one as well as that um, from, from firsthand experience as, as a host employer, and then working with onboarding of new clients at Browse, I can say this, that um, companies have specialty departments. There's lots of work that everybody's doing currently, and, and so this, this requires us to specialize in certain areas, and, and uh, there's some pros and cons with that. So one of the cons is that a lot of these departments are siloed from one another. They don't have a, a normal a routine uh, cross-department meetings about uh, where there's overlap and how they work with one another. So I would, when you do your, your system assessment, I would, I would take a look at the departments that are, that are stakeholders in this. And typically the ones that are involved are, are certainly the safety department, procurement department, risk management, um, supply chain in operations and, and sometimes even IT. So I, I would get these groups together and, and, and see where their, where their stakeholder points are and, and I'll also precaution too that um, sometimes there's some skepticism when, when these groups get together and, and they're a little concerned that, that one department might be trying to overstep into another's department's area. And I would just say have an open and candid conversation and really the focus of that conversation is, is more about how one can help the other, but it's certainly not a one department um, decision. All right, the next question pertains to the research, so maybe tailored, uh, tailored to Joy. It asks, in any of the research, was it considered that contractors that participate in third-party prequalification platforms 
ton of those platforms already with robust safety programs many other contractors do not have. Question notes that contractors that have clients that require participation in these proof qualification platforms may necessarily have better safety may not necessarily have better safety programs because of the client base that they're working for and comparing browse contractors to the general population contractors represented by BLS data may not be an apples to apples Right, yeah, and we did consider this um, when we put together that that first report that looked at um, uh, browse contractors, the browse suppliers versus the BLS as a whole, and that is kind of put, if you read the, the full report, um, we, we acknowledge the fact that, um, you know, if a, if a supplier is going to take that initiative to register with with browser or any kind of third-party pre-qualifying agency uh, in the first place, that they're probably at a at a point um, uh, of maturity in their own programs and in their own thinking about safety that puts them already above um, uh, above above the rest um, and above like general industry as a whole. So. Um, this is something to consider when you look at the when you look at the numbers uh, that compares uh, the browse suppliers to general BLS data, um, and it actually it even shows that you know above and beyond because we already showed that it kind of like the um, you know uh, browse suppliers improve. Um, at a at a higher rate than the industry as a whole over time, so I think it really it kind of also just uh, speaks more to uh, the maturity of those organizations um, above and beyond what you see um, throughout uh, the general industry as reflected in the BLS. Uh, Pat, I don't know if you wanted to add anything onto that. You know what I can say is, uh, as a student of safety, and, and uh, when I went through through grad school, we we read the Dan Peterson books, and and um, you know there was a phrase by by Dan was that uh, what gets measured and rewarded gets done, and and I say that's the case for contractor management. You know, contractors want to work safely, they want to perform for their host employers. Um, but they need a little guidance, and, and what's important to the host employer, what's important to the boss, is going to be important to the employee. And, and I think there's just some good social science involved with some of this in terms of uh, contractor performance. Next one: uh, Who pays for these services? The contractor or the hiring company that we use the browse services to screen contractors? So that's a very good uh, industry question, and. and uh, uh, I can say this for Browse, uh, is that um, we have a, a system uh, set up to, uh, to, to work for, to uh, be a client of Browse. Our distinction is that um, we're the, our tagline is we're the right fit. So we configure your system to your protocols, your history, your risk tolerance. So there is a charge to get your system set up, a one-time charge uh, for that. And then uh, the assessments that take place for the contractors and the collection of their data, we actually become their repository for a lot of their information. There's an annual fee charged to the to the contractor, and I can say this that when we were looking into contractor management and the third-party provider, that was one of the scary things for us: is that what if these contractors don't want to participate? Because they're going to be charged an annual fee. Uh, there is a benefit to them as well, and. Um, the reality is, is that uh, you may lose one or two contractors, but uh, the very uh, significant uh, vast majority are, are going to go along with your program. And, and um, the way the industry is today is that um, this is not anything new for contractors. So um, this, this pay model is, is very familiar to them. What leading indicators do you recommend assessing during the pre-qualification process? You know, I would, I would, uh, again, uh, you know, I'm, I'm uh, involved with social science, and, and that's my background. The culture part of it is that, uh, you know, go to the compliance piece. You, you need to, to do the lagging indicators. But in terms of leading indicators, I, I would say is that um, what are their metrics for, for getting out and ahead of, 
of uh, injuries and, and looking at uh, incidents. So are they are they doing the self assessments in their field? Is that part of their protocol? And do they have a process to to, to manage that? Um, and and again, I'll, I'll go back to um, the the aspects of, of how are these contractor companies um, training their leadership? Do they have a leadership a training program? What can they say when you ask them about what are you doing to engage your workforce? How do you get them to to report incidents in the field and and how to to improve best practices? These are the kinds of, of leading indicators that will let you know that this is a very proactive company and they're serious about safety and, and they're serious about investigate, um, investing, investing in safety as well. Even if an employer has vetted and pre-qualified their contractor, is an employer able to protect itself from liability for violations of OSHA safety standards by its contractors by not controlling or supervising the contractor employee? No, I'll I'll take that as well. You know, early in the in the in the 80s, uh, that used to be a, a thing where, uh, you know, leave contractors at an arm's length away and and just do your business as the host employer. And anything you read from industry and also from OSHA is there's a joint responsibility for safety. Well, there's an expectation that that uh, host employers are vetting their contractors, they're doing orientations, they're letting them know what hazards. Are, are the contractors are going to anticipate when they show up on site, and 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 are they working safely? Um, did you hire safe performing contractors from the from the onset? And I, I can also say I have firsthand experience that uh, when a negative event takes place and something uh, bad went uh, took place, and and uh, OSHA is at your doorstep, they're going to ask you about your contractor vetting process. If, if, if the situation is involving a contractor, they're first going to talk to the host employer. How did you determine you were going to hire this contractor? And you, and you need to have an answer for that. And what was the vetting process? And, and you explain your process. And, and then they're going to ask you, did you did you orientate them? Did you show them what, what hazards they're going to encounter and how to work with your processes? And, and once they, you satisfy that type of information, then they're going to turn uh, towards the contractor and, and, and look at what they're doing to prevent injuries and um, looking at uh, prevention. So um, there's, while there's joint responsibility, I, I found that OSHA's been very uh, realistic in, in terms of, of where the host employer and the, and the contractor's responsibilities merge and, and where they separate. All right, I believe we have time for one more question, and that is, do you support a third-party audit of a company's safety program? Yes, uh, you know, we're in the business for doing that, so I certainly do uh, am in a position to say yes to that, but in terms of outside, yes. Uh, however it's done, I would say that, uh, as I mentioned before, is that, you know, many of the contractors that you're hiring are, are small to medium size and and they and they have uh, you know they're they're also involved with high risk jobs. So being a small contractor doesn't give you a pass not to have written safety programs and employee training. So if they're in the business of high risk uh, work, then they need to have the same protocols and and processes as, as larger companies. But um, I will say this from experience is that a lot of these companies, while they have these programs, they don't generally get involved to self-auditing their programs. So I would say, and, and from our experience, we, you know, I, I mentioned before that there can be up to 80% failure rate initially. So I would say that, yes, that, that contractors' programs do need to be vetted and, and looked at to see if they're compliant. I, I would not make that assumption that they are. Okay, thank you. Uh, unfortunately, we have run out of time. I'm sorry that we didn't get to everyone's questions, but all of today's unanswered questions will be forwarded on to our speakers. Once again, uh, we hope you take the time to fill out the evaluation survey on your screen to give us your feedback. And that ends today's Safety and Health Magazine webcast. I'd like to thank Pat Cunningham, Joey Inouye, everyone at Browse, and all of you who listened in. Thanks, and have a great day. <laughs>